You know, I've been reminded every week, our stories are so sacred, you know? I mean, throughout the scriptures, punctuated at different points in different ways, but there's that question of, does anybody see me for who I actually am and will you bear witness to my story? They're sacred. And so these moments that we have, I know that a lot of times we come to church and it's a lot about... um, positive things, right? Like how, how do I give and, and, and also like what can I gain? But sometimes just sit and bear witness to a story and that's it. That's enough. That's a beautiful and powerful thing. And so, you know, as I think back on the past month and all the different stories that have come forward in front of cameras and Christian, the work that you put into it, it is um, some of the holiest work I think we've done in a long time. And I mean that completely, sincerely. And um, so thank you, Christian. Thank you for those who are willing to go before us. It's a big deal. It matters. And so thank you for that. Uh, Listen, you guys, um, my name is Matt Mulberg. I'm one of the leaders here at the table. If we have not yet to be acquainted, let's make sure we make that happen after the service. I met somebody last week and I was like, "Um, how long have you been coming to the table? And she said, well, I've been here for since uh, September. And I said, I'm an idiot. I'm a terrible pastoral leader, but I'd like to change that. So if we have yet to meet, Please let's make that a priority and let's make it happen because I would love to know more about your story. Um, This is the time in the worship service where we tend to dive into some kind of substantial conversation. Right now we are in the series, It's Not You, It's Everything. We're going through Eric Minton's new book of the same name and the idea is we want to like kind of rebel against ADHD culture where we're all over the place and say, let's holistically just go sermon, small groups, everything. Let's walk through this and pay attention because what Minton is trying to get at is everything that's gone down the past few years, everything that is going down right now, let's not just figure out how do we endure it, let's ask questions about how do we understand it, how do we actually take in what is happening, not just from this, how do we survive, but how do we make sense? And it's important that we do that collectively as a community and so we don't take that for granted. Before I say anything tonight though, I do wanna make sure to note that regardless of the content that comes your way, And I'm going to be honest with you, it might be a little chaotic because I'm present tensely like overwhelmed by what we are talking about. I told my wife over here to your left, my right, that I don't feel like this is baked in the oven enough. Like I feel, you know what I mean? Like when you're just presently overwhelming, there's not a lot of nodding heads. So I feel very alone right now. Thank you. So regardless if you gain anything from the content that comes, I want you to know this, every time you walk into this room, it's important that you walk out with this truth that who you are matters so much more than what you do, period. Even if what you do gets more attention than who you are. Your personhood, your story, it matters more than your production, the highlight reel, what you spit out. It's important that we say that at the beginning of every sermon because it can get lost along the way. And so I want to make sure that that is punctuated very clearly. Now, I'm going to sound like your 72-year-old grandfather tonight who's yelling at you from the other room saying, turn down that friggin' music because it's way too loud. I'm going to sound archaic and and it's going to be annoying for some of you. But I'm going to talk about technology, social media, chapter 3 in Mitten's book. This is an important conversation. I previously noted that I'm overwhelmed by it right now. Because when I actually took a deeper dive into 
all of the implications and consequences and adverse effects that come from being inside of a culture that is addicted to social media like ours presently is, it's a lot to take in. What I'm gonna provide for you is maybe an introductory conversation, not much more because as I already said, it's chewing in my mouth right now. I don't have it fully digested. That's, again, though, what Debbie's doing right now and why she's a miracle worker, despite the disparaging comments she said about me earlier on, is like, this is why it's important that we do this as a small group. This is important why you don't just go through this book by yourself, but you actually let the, the words on the page reach out to the group and ask back and forth questions about real time. How do we actually manifest this in our relationships as parents, as friends, as all of the above? How do we go about this work? This is gonna be a lot, so let me start with the story that was sent to me yesterday morning by a friend when I told him the other day that I collect like illustrative potential things inside of my notes file. He sent me this story that I actually feel like fits perfectly for where I wanna to begin tonight. Here's the story. He said this, once upon a time in a not so far away land, there was a kingdom of acorns nestled at the foot of a grand old oak tree. Now, since the citizens of this kingdom were modern, fully westernized acorns, they went about their business with purposeful energy. And since they were midlife baby boon, boomer acorns, they engaged in a lot of self-help courses. There were seminars called Beating Back Hell While Living in a Shell. There were woundedness and recovery groups for acorns who had been bruised in their original fall from the tree. There were spas for oiling and polishing those shells and various acornopathic therapies to enhance longevity and well-being. One day, in the midst of this kingdom, there suddenly appeared a naughty little stranger, apparently dropped out of the blue by a passing bird. This stranger was capless and dirty, making an immediate negative impression on his fellow acorns, and he crouched beneath the oak tree, and the whole time while he was sitting there in the shadows of this tree, he was stammering out a story. When the community grew close to him, they found out that this acorn that dropped out of nowhere, that was capless and dirty, was pointing upward at the tree, and he kept saying, we are that. That's us. That's, that's we are that. Delusional thinking, obviously, the other acorns concluded. But one of them continued to engage him in conversation and said, so tell us, how would we become that tree right there? The stranger, acorn, that recently fell to the ground beneath the tree that was pointing upwards, saying, we are there, said, well, now he was pointing downwards. It has something to do with going into the ground and cracking open the shell. And when he said those words, the crowd was inflamed, angry, saying, this is insane, totally morbid. If we did what you are suggesting we should do, well, then we would no longer be acorns. We would cease to be who we are. In my experience, in recent conversations, both in, amongst other clergy people, but also just amongst everybody, it has been my sense that when everybody, anybody is set out to talk to the average American about living a life beyond social media, breaking free from the norms of society today, and that somebody sets out to tell them that there is an abundance beyond the reality you know right now, that there is a transformation that is possible that could lead you to a tree, those people have been dismissed, discounted, discarded as irrational, morbid, Delusional. 
For if we were to listen to you, ah, we would cease to be what? Fill in the blanks, acorns, connected, profitable, in the know, aware, activated, mobilized. Fill in the blank, what might it be that is keeping you as an acorn when you're born to be a tree? I'm going to ask you in this space tonight, and I have Debbie literally, I said, I'm going to verbally vomit because I just have a pile full of notes. I'm going to try to stick strictly to them, but it's going to probably go four or five hours, so I need you to give me one of these when it's just, it's too much, Matt. Cut it off. But I'm going to ask that you don't dismiss me just yet, that you would listen to what I'm trying to provide you with tonight that Minton sets out in chapter three of his book, because in that chapter, he sets out to start this conversation about how social media and technology have become the souls of our society and our stories, and not once do we stop and ask if this is good. It's become so normalized that we've just assumed that it's benign. So normalized that we've assumed that it's not actually doing detrimental harm to us, that it's not actually reaching into us. I also want to say, because I'm about to go dark, and I'm going to need you to bear with me for a little while, I'm not all dark. I see the positive that social media provides. I see Black Lives Matter. I see Me Too. I see different movements that go from ideas in the room to filling the streets with positive hopes and, and proclamations of liberation that I believe in to my core. I see the positive side of social media, but that will not lead me to dismiss how harmful it has become. There is a both and nature that's going to require maturity from us that I'm going to ask you to lean into with tonight. I want to start with this, is, is this interview that I heard back in the day. I don't know if I heard it real time in 2017, but somewhere around that time. And it was with the founder of Facebook, not Mark, but Seth. Is it Seth? Sean, excuse me, Sean. Sean Parker had this conversation in 2017 where he is sitting down with the, the company of Axios, the, the news, is it a magazine? Does anybody know? It's not, that's not the point. That's not the point already, okay? Thank you guys for your time tonight. I really appreciate it. Sean Parker is one of the, he's the first president of Facebook, and um, if you're an Aaron Sorkin fan, he's the one that's played by Justin Timberlake inside of the film. But over time, Sean Parker became this conscientious objector inside of Silicon Valley where he turned around and recognized that the thing that he is, has produced is perpetuating harm on millions. And so he has this quote inside of the interview that jumped out to me then, but honest to God, between you and I, I had dismissed and kind of said, oh, that's nice to know, until recently when my kid turned nine, and I realized this is necessary to know. This is overwhelming to actually take into account. He had this conversation where he says this, God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains. The thought process that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them, was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible? Now, to do that, that means that we need to sort of give you a little dopamine hit every once in a while because somebody liked or commented on a photo or a post or whatever, told you you look good, and that's going to get you to contribute then more content, and that's going to get you more likes and comments. It's a social validation feedback loop, exactly the kind of thing that a hacker like myself will come up with because you are exploiting, now hear this, a vulnerability in human psychology. 
Hold on to that as I introduce you now to another voice from Silicon Valley, this man right here named Tristan Harris. Now, I have followed Tristan Harris for a little bit now, and he is somebody that The Atlantic recently actually called the closest thing Silicon Valley has to a conscious. He started out as a design ethicist and a product philosopher for Google. That is actually a thing. And since his time at Google, he left to start a nonprofit where essentially his sole aim, the sole aim of this nonprofit is to go out and get software designers and engineers behind the scenes to sign some sort of Hippocratic oath to say we will no longer do harm in the name of capitalism. We will no longer do harm in the name of manipulation for greedy ends. We're going to change our ways. When he sat down for an interview, he recently said this. Technology steers, think about this, what two billion people are thinking and believing every day. It is possibly the largest source of influence over two billion people's thoughts that has ever been created. Religions and governments don't have that much influence over people's daily thoughts. When I came out of seminary, this was a constant conversation, is you might be able to preach one thing on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday, there's a whole other thing that's getting preached constantly. So how do you actually counter that with some sense of leading people towards an abundant life where they're free and not held hostage to the winds of capitalism and, and social media? He is saying that essentially, if you break it all down, the way that social media is wired is it's wired to influence, manipulate, move you in a way that is this mass sweep that is only profiting the few, and typically it ends up being somebody who looks like John Wayne and headed to Mars or space recently. This is the state of the world that we are in. This is what we are going through as of late. And yet daily, we consistently consume these things. Another voice, Linda Stone, when she actually, a lead market researcher from Microsoft, when she stepped out and actually realized what tech has produced as of late, when she took a sober account of Silicon Valley, she said that we have been left with, we have been victimized by the what we are now. If you actually want to take a sober account of where we stand in light of the damage that social media has done, it is a continuous partial attention. That is our default setting. James Williams, another tech industry leader, he said that the largest, most standardized, and most centralized form of attention control is happening right now in the course of human history, and nobody is paying attention. Are these, are these alarming quotes to any of you? We, we don't think about it thoroughly. We don't ask the second question. We don't do the follow-up work. We just subscribe, click, like, dislike, move on, scroll, feed, without actually ever asking, what is it that's being fed? Who is profiting off of this, and is it actually me? What am I gaining from this? What am I losing from this? What is the cost of all of this? These are just a few of the voices, and honest to God, we could have filled up the whole night just giving you a lot of other leaders. Because daily right now, we have um, stories leaking out of Silicon Valley where executives from there are, are being, there's these stories coming out that saying they're paying high price tuitions to make sure that their kids are going to private schools that are completely device free. Because they have seen firsthand the damage that can be done in the name of social media, in the name of technology. And I know, again, I sound like your 72-year-old grandma. Grandma? Grandpa. But pay attention, because this matters. It is like when you hear these stories, I do tend to think about Biggie Smalls when he had the initial quote, do not get high off of your own supply. You don't do it. 
They were aware of it. But the rest of us, we've been smoking the supply that they put out into the world, and we've rarely asked questions about a better way. We've been those acorns who assumed that the trees were not inside of our future, and we've accepted reality on crappy terms, and it's time that we change the course. <laughs> this is the overwhelmed nature of me. When I read these stats and the things that are coming out, I'm losing my mind right now. Do I come across as unstable to you? Because that's how I feel. That's honestly how I feel. The more that I take this in, the more Lauren and I try to figure out how do you parent inside of this age? How do you raise kids that are actually going to walk out as like, not just like palatable in terms of a sick society, but actually forces for good? And actually forces for sobriety. Actually forces that are going to love their neighbor beyond the tokenized, performative things that we say on social media. How do we grow up? How do we raise acorns that actually believe that they are capable of becoming trees? How do we do this work? That is the question that is before us. And, and when I think about this further, and I think about what Parker said in particular, he had this quote, and I believe in much of what he said, but I disagree with one particular part. He said that God only knows what is going on or what it's doing to our kids' brains. That's not true. I don't think God's the only one who knows those things. I think we are actually gaining insight. And so this is where I want to overwhelm you really quick and leave you as a hot mess. I want to give you some stats. Um, when you think about just our technology, does anybody else get those like time on screen reports or screen time reports at the end of the week? Does anybody else look at, look at those and just feel immediately like ashamed or embarrassed where you're like, I thought I had a family and a job, but... <laughs> Apparently, all I have is a phone, <laughs> like, because this is what that is reflecting me, to me right now. When people have actually set out to understand what is happening, what they have found is that on average, the average iPhone user touches their phone 2,617 times in one day. The average, let me say that again, because I don't know if it, the average iPhone user touches their phone 2,617 times a day. Yesterday, I had the stat down as like 1,700 or something like that. That was last year. I was wrong. I looked it up again this morning. In 2022, what they have surmised thus far is that it is actually more reflective accurately to say that the average iPhone user touches it 2,617 times every day. The average user is, is when they touch their phones, it, it amounts to over two and a half hours a day, over 76 different sessions. When you are a young strapping buck like myself, a millennial, sorry, that's the proper term, that number doubles. Honest, I'm asking you to let that seep in. Think about that right now. This is like a cry from help for coming from the pulpit right now. I'm like, this is jarring information that we are receiving today. It's not only God who is understanding this right now. We are getting a glimpse behind the scenes of what the technology is doing to our lives. Are we paying attention to realize this is a lot? Ten Commandments. Debbie and I were just talking before. One of the first commandments is do not put any God before me. Recognizing there's going to be a lot of other gods. Make sure you have the right one prioritized. It's David Foster Wallace at Kenyon University, Kenyon College, where he says, listen, you're going to end up worshiping somebody. Who's it going to be? I'll tell you this, if it's not going to be something spiritual, if it's not going to be a, like Buddha or Jesus or whatever the thing might be, he says, you'll end up worshiping sex. I know where that's going to get you. Power, I know where that's going to get you. Your career, I know that's going to get you. Find something bigger that's going to overwhelm your story. Otherwise, you're left touching an iPhone 2,600 times. And is that really going to lead you to the abundant life of a tree that you set out to pursue? 
Is that actually what you are after right now? Let's go deeper into this right now. One of the most jarring things that I came across this morning was a, a quote that came from John Mark Comer's book where he's talking about the effects of social media. And he says this where he says, um, even if a phone is off, even if a phone is in, in a drawer on the other side of the room, the very presence of that phone will reduce, statistically, will reduce someone's working memory in problem-solving skills. If that phone is in the room with you, even if you're not touching it, it is touching you. It is interrupting your ability to be the tree that you were born to be. These touches are not benign. These touches are taking our attention. When you think about actually diving into what is attention, Lauren and I, we started to watch um, this show from like 2000, the year 2000. And it's an amazing show. That's how I remember it. It was an amazing experience when we first went through it. I watched MI1, for those of you not familiar, that's Mission Impossible 1, the other day with my kids. And I was like, you guys are going to love this show. Until it got inappropriate, I promise you I turned it off. But in MI1, it's like my first thought was, as we're watching scene by scene unfold, is this is so much slower than I remembered it being. The scenes last longer. There's like actual dialogue. Where's the flash? Where's the bang? Where's the boom? Let's move on as quick as possible. We moved it to another show, same time zone, same kind of thing. In the year 2000, the average American had an attention span of 12 seconds. Right now, in the year two, well, the last study was year 2020, the average attention span for the average American is eight seconds. For context, the average attention span for a goldfish is nine seconds. How do you think we're doing? We are losing out to goldfish, folks. Social media, our phones, the tech, the amount it, it, it interrupts our daily lives, it is breaking in and it is stealing our attention. But let's be clear, it's not just taking our attention, it's leaving us with anxiety. And maybe this is, Patty, if you can direct the slides, this is where I want to finish, harp on. I want us to understand, I want us to be on the same page. I know this is different tonight, but please bear with me because it matters. I don't know, Patty, let's, uh, you know, follow your heart, I think, more than anything. <laughs> Let me just, when I think about how it's not just leaving us with a less in intention, but it's actually leaving us with anxiety, I can't help but think about our babies. And I think about, well, I'll be honest with my kids. And I think about the crippling effects that we are now seeing our babies receiving from the world that we created. And the stats are alarming. Again, I'm just scratching the surface tonight. We're just starting this conversation tonight. But I want to read some of these stats to you because I think they really do matter. First one being this, in recent studies, when you think about, we were at our cabin this past weekend with friends that we've known since childhood, and we had a chance to sit down once the kids were, oh my gosh, they were watching a movie. <laughs> oh! <laughs> But we had parent time. We started talking about just like the challenges of being parents. Obviously, all of the challenges that came inside of the pandemic, but just day in, day out, Monday through Friday and, and the weekends as well. Like the challenges and in particular, screen time. This stat was alarming for me. In a recent study, eighth graders who spend 10 or more hours a week on social media are 56% more likely to say they're unhappy than those who devote less time to social media. 56%, 56%, 56%, 56 
56%, if I was to say, I will give you this pill that's going to make you probably 56% more happy, what kind of gain would justify that for you? 56%, 10 hours or more. You might say 10 hours is a lot. Well, then let's talk about six to nine hours. Six to nine hours a week on social media, it's 47% more likely to say they are unhappy than those who use it less. Now, what that actually leads to, Patty, can you click the next slide? is this, it's not just a general sense of unhappiness, discomfort with life, it's leading to this from the National Institute of Health, which recently reported that nearly one in three adolescents aged 13 through 18 will experience an anxiety and uh, disorder. And according to the CDC, suicide is now the second leading cause of death in American youth ages 10 to 24, a tripling of the suicide rate in this population from 2007 to 2017. If we are a community that is committed to being good news, this stuff matters. Like, I, I am heartbroken right now just reading that again. Thinking about the world that we are creating, the world that we are participating in, the culture that we are cultivating together, that we are propping up and keeping alive, it's inhospitable to our babies' lives. And if that doesn't piss you off, I don't know what will. Period. Maybe that's the message. <laughs> because honestly, when we actually do a sober assessment of the things that we participate in and just assume it's benign and, and not a big deal, pay attention. This is just for the kids. But if I were to actually spend the rest of the evening, if you brought sleeping bags and we were going to stay overnight, you would be so alarmed right now at the anxiety-induced all of the, the behavioral issues that are popping up across our culture right now, all of like the, I'll just leave it as problems that we are seeing right now, how they can trace it back from exactly to the time, if you draw a timeline from when the iPhone was created to where we are now, what it has done to anxiety, depression, and stress, how it has deformed our sense of self, our sense of neighbors. I mean, who among here is looking at their neighbors who they thought they were once nice guys, but then they found out their political views and seeing them as fully human still? It is flattening complex people into the, this is what you are, this is what you aren't, take it or leave it. That's not true. Core to being a Christian is you are subscribing to a nonconformist way of life where you are being a part of a community that is saying, I am allowed to be weird because I'm a bodied life, I'm not a brand. I'm somebody that is complex. I'm somebody that has nuance. I'm somebody that believes this one day and then I, I learned some things and I changed my mind and that's okay. We don't allow that capacity right now. And because we need to project and uphold these presentations of ourselves that are actually divorced from the reality that we are participating in, it's killing us. It's keeping us small as acorns. You were born to be a tree. You were born to be more than we are right now. Right now we are at a point where we can assess this, even the glimpse of research that we are gaining in front of us today, we can see that this is actually a problem. I'm going to close because I'm Debbie. You didn't give me the cut sign, but we're going too long, and I apologize for that, you guys. Jesus says this. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. My dad used to say, you are what you eat. Attention precedes adoration. What you give your attention to is what you are investing your adoration in. If your eye is healthy, your body will be full of light. Where are you giving your eyes? Where are you giving your attention? Right now, the number one talking point whenever you, you Google social media is that we are an attention economy. Everybody is trying to get your eyes for a limited amount of time, trying to sell you something, turn you into something, and it's your job to say no. It's your job to hold your ground. This is an addiction that we are all under. 
There's no other way to say it. I'll tell you this, when, when I went in last summer to my therapist's office after having a relapse in my recovery, I went to them and we had this, like, it's that slow drag where it's like, oh, freaking, I'm gonna have to tell them everything and they're gonna ask me questions that I'd rather not answer. And she did. And she said, like, what happened? And I, I ended up telling her the truth. I said, if I have my druthers about me, without fully understanding what the word druthers is, I would drink every single day. Part of me believes that that would actually give me peace. I would drink every single day. And she goes, well, if you consider the past few years, you, you kind of have. How has that worked out for you? If you hear nothing else tonight, when you think about your current state of being, when you think about Jesus' invitation to the abundant life, and you think about the patterns of your lives that regulates your participation in different things, how is it actually working out for you? How is it working out for you? Jesus, God, I know this was chaos, <laughs> probably a mess, too much heart, not enough head. I'll be better. But God, I pray that we would be overwhelmed by these things that nobody else is that babies matter too much. Our kids growing up in a world, Lord, where they're told they are not enough, insufficient, where they gauge their own value through context of comparison, that's all BS, God. Help us to be a community that looks our kids in the eyes and looks one another in the eyes and says, you belong, you are enough, you are significant, you are sacred. You might think you're an acorn, but I promise you, you're a tree. We have to sober up to the realities of how much damage these things we think are benign are actually doing to our lives. Now is a time where we need complex people doing creative work. Not just scrolling through their feeds and assuming that they're the ones being fed. Christ, give us eyes that light up our body. Keep our hearts wide. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right before Matt came on, came on, it's a weird, right before the service started, we were talking about this topic. He was sharing what he shared, how it's a lot to take on. And I was reminded from the first chapter that I preached on last week, Eric Mitten finished that chapter by saying the internet was supposed to save us, free us, and connect us. And I like how you ended, Matt, because how's that working for us? I think we all know that it's actually the opposite of all that. And when I think about us as a faith community, as what it means to follow Jesus Christ, I think about a God who created us to belong to God and to belong to one another, to be deeply connected in relationship, real relationship, not something here where you go about this deep, not something out there that um, has has us looking good all the time, but real relationship, the messy stuff, the hard stuff, the joys, the sorrows. That's what we get to do here together. So I appreciate the message tonight, Matt, and I think it's a, it's a good starting place. It's a good place to, to be reminded, to be more thoughtful, to think about 
what is this looking like in our lives? And it's this moment when we share in communion that we can actually pause and start thinking about that. Because when we take communion, we remember a God who calls us into the full life, who sacrificed himself out of love so that we might have the full life. On the night before Jesus died, he took bread. And he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. He took the cup and he poured wine into the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. When you drink from this cup, remember me. And so as you guys take that cup and you peel back the top and you find that wafer, hear these words, the body of Christ broken for you. When you drink from that cup, hear these words, the blood of Christ shed for you. And we can be reminded that we are called into something deeper and fuller and more meaningful. Would you please stand and together we can pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom glory forever.